Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. Today, I'm welcoming back to the show, Dr. Jennifer Jones-McMeans, Divisional Vice President for Global Affairs for Abbott's Vascular Business. Jennifer joined us on the podcast a little over a year ago in episode 53 to talk about clinical trial diversity, and I've asked her back to talk about what progress has been made in the meantime, and specifically to talk about some steps Abbott has announced in the last few months uh, towards that goal. So welcome back to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me, Jonah. I appreciate uh, the invite. You feel somewhat privileged when we get a second, uh, second ask. Absolutely. Well, it's a topic that has not lost any importance over the last year. And it's honestly kind of hard for me to believe it was a year ago that we did this. So tell me a little bit about what, what's been going on in Abbott. Um, well, first of all, yeah, so, so we'll go through the initiative sort of one by one. But maybe first, uh, in case people didn't listen to the first episode, you know, what's, what's the background here and, and how has, you know, that led to this becoming kind of a priority for Abbott? Right. So, uh, so thanks for your introduction. I'll just say it again. Um, my name is uh, Jennifer Jones McMeans. I'm the Divisional Vice President of Global Clinical Affairs for Abbott's Vascular Business. And so all of our work is around or the work that I'm doing for vascular is around clinical trials in the vascular space. So that means any type of diseases that need let's say uh, coronary artery disease that may need a stent or um, any type of therapy around thrombectomy, below the knee uh, disease, carotid disease, um, and all sorts of vascular issues in, um, in which new therapies are being evaluated and uh, on patients, that would fall into the work that we're doing within Global Clinical Affairs for Vascular. And so really to answer your question, so we'll go back. Um, we know that as we kind of are three years post the pandemic, there was a really um, pinnacle point in the United States and even globally in understand, understanding health inequities. And uh, that specifically in the U.S. was around uh, people of color, also when it comes to gender and gender identity and the importance that uh, clinical programs, clinical trials are inclusive of all. And especially when you think about what Abbott has always been focused on is global health. Everybody matters. And that means that our clinical trials have to be conducted the same way, that those burdened by the disease have to be included in the trials that we are evaluating those um, uh, therapies for those diseases. So that's really been a mantra that we continue to hold in front of us. So we have done a lot of work over the last few years and really uh, building upon our focus point, our tenant about patient care and expanding that to ensure that our clinical trials are as uh, diverse as possible and that those patients, again, burdened by the disease are included. And so last year, we announced a, a bunch of um, initiatives and work that uh, is pan-Abbott, you know, a uh, big multi-million dollar investment in diversity and inclusion. But where we are now, I think where you've asked kind of where we've gone, uh, we, we've continued to expand and that's what we should be doing every year. And uh, one of those is, and I'm not sure if you were going to bring it up, but it was with our Nor Norton Healthcare Foundation to really, um, the, the partnership that we're doing with uh, Nor uh, Norton in order to ensure that um, clinic-based medicine has the infrastructure to conduct clinical trials. That's really, you know, kind of the basis for that. So if you look at um, kind of a new model to, to ensure you have sustainability with clinical trials, it's not always happening in the large hospital centers. Sometimes right. it's happening in the smaller um, community-based organizations or even uh, satellites to larger institutions. And how are we equipping them and supporting these institutions or smaller uh, community-based uh, organ um, healthcare organizations to conduct research? 
So that's that partnership with Norton. So I'll stop there for number one. Well, that's something we hear. I've heard a lot doing research into this topic. I, I did an article on this recently. Um, and, you know, the, the academic medical centers, that the, the, the dependence on academic medical centers for clinical research is itself kind of a hindrance towards representation and diversity because there's a certain population that lives around those medical centers that they serve and other populations get their medicine from these more local clinics, right? So that's what this sort of is all shapes into. Yeah, yes. And so and we I think it helps move um, kind of our view of how medicine is conducted and where patients go. And we will always say that, you know, it is great to have the larger, well-known names of um, institutions that we all know across the United States, but not everyone has access to those. And we've seen examples where your smaller uh, community-based healthcare organizations, they are vital to the community. They are first step for patients to get information. And, you know, again, to bring up COVID, I think they were vital for patients to get information about COVID. So we should be taking a level of um, insight from that of how do we empower these um, these community-based healthcare organizations to be part of the research conduct? Because many times that's where patients are going. That's where they're being referred out. Uh, if they have something a little more uh, that needs to be uh, treated by maybe the larger institution. So our work is how do we invest in those type of organizations? And what goes into that? What are some of the kind of deficiencies at at the clinics where they need that additional training and, and support in order to participate in clinical research? I mean, is it about the data management? Is it about, you know, sort of processes? And and I know in a clinical trial setting, you've got everything's got to be very uh, buttoned up so that it can be consistent across groups and and be good science. Yes. Yeah, so if you think about it, um, and I, you know, and I always go back to some of the physicians that we've, we've been working with over the last few years, where we actually were investing in um, their clinical research. Many times, you know, a physician may come out of medical school, but not have been. Maybe they weren't part of a, a large research program, and they're starting their own um, community-based uh, healthcare center. They may not have all the tools or know what tools to put in place in order to conduct that research. Because as sponsors, if we've been going to large institution X, they have a huge system and process in place to conduct the work from institutional review boards present, clinical research centers, um, what we call GCRCs to conduct the research, research coordinators. All that infrastructure is in place so that that physician who conducts the research is able to you know, lean on institution X. But if you are starting your own healthcare center of in a community-based area, all those tools may not be in place. Something as simple as um, GCP training, you know, getting getting that access, and then something that you've mentioned. Okay, you know, you know, we can they can use a central IRB, but do they have the staff? Because you know they may have staff for physician, nurses, um, administrator. But you need to think of your research coordinator. Research coordinator could be a nurse or non-nurse. That is an essential piece. Who's going to do that work? Who's going to do the regulatory work piece? Who's going to be prepared for if there is an FDA audit at their site? Like all those um, items have to be put in place. And so what a grant like this, um, you know, through using Norton, it helps to help. It helps to build that infrastructure to um, support these smaller organizations. Now, one of the other pieces that was announced is a training program for clinical research coordinators. I think we should go there next because it seems like there's a lot of overlap between that and what we're talking about now. 
A lot of overlap. Yeah. So that's uh, with partnership with Barnett International. And that, you know, that's exciting in itself because some of, again, if you're a smaller uh, network of a hospital system or um, a healthcare uh, organization, your research coordinator, I will say this. Well, let me back up. Your research coordinator, to all those research coordinators out there, are fantastic and essential. Let me just basically start there. Good clinical research is done with a good clinical research coordinator. And that has been my continuous experience uh, in this work that I've done over this over many years. And so arming these, these smaller institutions with research coordinators who are uh, very well trained, have experience, have mentorship, that is essential. Because if they don't have a coordinator, they're going to be continuous gaps because our physician, especially if you think of many of the interventional spaces that Abbott's in, uh, your physician, they're there for the procedure. They're there for the initial, they're for the oversight, but there needs to be a, a strong, sustainable partner and a coordinator who's going to do that day-to-day work to make sure, number one, patients are okay, regulations are being followed, protocols are being followed, good clinical practice, any interaction with IRB, you know, all of those pieces have to be in place and a strong coordinator can do that. And it seems evident to me that you can't just put that on the existing staff because we have this burnout problem. And I mean, that would just add to it. Absolutely. You know, and yeah, Joe, I think you, you said it because you can't just ask your nurse who's supporting you and all, you know, in the support of the physician and all other capacity or even the administrator in all these capacities to say, oh, I'm adding this on. I mean, it, it, it really um, can lead to a lot of, uh, again, the burnout. And just discontinuity that can exist within their healthcare system. When I think of some of the best clinical trial sites, it's this wonderful team atmosphere. Okay. And I always say clinical trials are a team sport. It's a team atmosphere where strong physician, strong research coordinator, nurse, strong other supportive staff, all working together with the sponsor to ensure that at the end of the day, the patient participating in the trial is receiving great treatment, despite whether you know what the outcome is going to be about therapy, but they're just receiving great treatment in general. They're getting the support. And then there's the communication piece between sponsor and clinical trial site that's happening. Uh, so, and it, you know, such that everyone at the end of the day is, uh, I want to say, I want to use the word well taken care of, like, so patients well taken care of, uh, institutions well taken care of, sponsor like we're all part of this and and you think about it no one position is is higher than the other if we're not there i mean if they, if, if one is missing then it all falls apart so that's the piece of the coordinator the coordinator can't be missing so if we if you know if that's part of our investment in ensuring that there's the ability to train up um coordinators to support uh these research trials all sort of towards the goal of making these local these community clinics these smaller operations just as attractive to the sponsors as the academic medical centers, right? Because the reason the sponsors gravitate towards those is because they're reliable and pharma companies, med device companies like to keep their risk down as much as they can on these very expensive trials. Yes. And, and I, and I, of course, everyone wants to, you know, reduce their risk, but I would also just say too, um, you know, we've seen examples where you don't have that continuity within um, a, you know, a smaller institution. And when it's lost, um, it's it doesn't benefit anyone. And, and really, the opportunity for the patient is actually missed as well. One of the interesting things about this work is that you have to have that balance between uh, pragmatism and 
I don't even want to say, um, I don't even want to say like, uh, you know, you, you focus on the mission, but also recognizing the needs of all the stakeholders and making sure that like, you're not just forcing them to be more diverse, but you're, you're showing them that it's a better option for them and, and making it so that that's going to be their new normal. Because that's the ultimate goal, right? Is to kind of change the whole paradigm in clinical trials. Oh, that is the ultimate goal. And I think what we have to see is that, okay, you know how we look at medicine and that if I asked you, Jonah, well, at any point in medicine, do you think there's a stopping point in evolution? And you'd be like, no, you know, as long as, you know, there are humans, we need to be evolving. And clinical trials have to be looked at the same way. That paradigm We've got to continue to evolve and say, how are we keeping up with the pace with therapeutic technology improvements and how medicine is being done? So we need to be saying the same thing. So this is part of that work as well. I want to jump back because there's one more thing on my list we didn't talk about yet, which is the diversity and research office, um, which I guess sort of oversees all these things or what's the function there at Abbott? How does that work? So we really had the benefit of opening the diversity and research office uh, that that was announced recently as well. Um, I, I have a partner who has that office, myself and um, Dr. Aparna Ahuja, uh, who is uh, my colleague. Um, she's also divisional vice president of our diagnostic division, um, and she's based out of Chicago. And so this is a focused effort by both of us. But main goal, all this work on diversity and inclusion research uh, and clinical research, standardization ensuring that we are working like a well-oiled machine and that it's not one part of the business that's carrying it, that everyone is working to in a collective, with a collective objective of knowing what our, our goal is. And so with, you know, think about it, we standardize so much within our organization and our and with our corporation. And so uh, we need, we knew we needed this same type of standardization. So some of that work you know, we we meet actually um, across uh, many of the divisional vice presidents and global clin- uh, of global clinical across the business. We meet at least twice a quarter to discuss best practices and learnings. Okay, so I want to know what you're doing. I want to do what you're doing, and how are we going to incorporate that? We're also discussing. Okay, the new FDA template guidance is coming out. It's going to be a law. Uh, it's b- being put into law by 2025. Um, every clinical trial needs to have a diversity inclusion plan. Demonstration of how you're executing on it. Okay, so how are we going to collectively do this as a corporation? Um, also, we have the medical advisory board, this external board based on DNI, and so we meet quarterly with that board in order to uh, present current programs to get external feedback. And it's not the feedback that you would normally get, like when I'm preparing for a trial and talking to maybe regulators or even the KOLs about you know the therapy itself and the trial design. It's it's now adding a different layer of DNI awareness of how are we conducting the trial and the and the feedback is rigorous. And so we get that feedback and we figure out how are we going to implement it? And then we go back and we also discuss with them, okay, this is what I've done so far. What are you thinking? Where's my miss? And so uh, that that work has been added with the with the uh, diversity um, in research office. Wow. And then all that work that gets done in individual trials, the effort is there to kind of standardize it and make sure those learnings extend to other trials at Abbott. Exactly. Because I, I do see clinical trials as um, an individual fingerprint. Every trial is different. The needs of patients are different. So what I um, would see, you know, in a rapid diagnostic trial, their needs may be different, but it's the aligned tenet of what we're doing uh, that, that we, are, we are focused on, making sure objectives are understood, direction is understood, 
and uh, that that foundational piece is there. So um, I, I spoke with you a year ago. It's been almost three years since the FDA came out with the first draft guidance on clinical trial diversity. That roughly coincides with the sort of uh, racial uh, reckoning, awakening that happened in 2020 around um, the George Floyd protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so there's, you know, we're significantly further than three years into sort of the idea of, of this, but like this sustained push by, you know, by the industry with the nudging of the government. Um, we're, we've been at it for a few years. What, like as an industry, what have we accomplished? What, you know, what, what's been the good sort of, um, you know, things and, and where are we still kind of, where are the edges we're still working on? Well, you know, Jonah, we, we're having a second meeting. So I think that's one example (laughs) that that you invited me back. But what I have seen, which has been wonderful is this non-competitive collaborative landscape across sponsors. I have had the pleasure and privilege to meet with individuals in similar positions to myself or not so similar across industry from Glasgow, Smith, Klein, uh, Lilly, Gilead, AbbVie, you know, other large, um, you know, uh, healthcare industry sponsors with the focus point of how are we going to do this collectively? Because we don't see it as a competitive advantage because it's the patient. How are we going to ensure that the patient remains the focus and we're doing the work collectively to improve health equity. So I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I've been very pleased with. And really in seeing though, that, you know, this bill was passed by, you know, the omnibus bill was passed first of the year in which it's now become a requirement that the DNI um, template is uh, needed for all IDEs and IMDs. That's a big step. Because now we know that, you know, FDA has been very collaborative in asking for many years, but now there's a focus point of saying, hey, let's just require this mm-hmm. and ensure that we're like that every company that's coming up for their IDE and IND are demonstrating and explaining how they're going to do this. And so it just it elevates um, this work one more step. It evolves, as I noted, you know, healthcare evolves, and this is part of that evolution. And at the end of the day, I'm hoping that patients with seeing this work and this collective collaboration from regulations to industry uh, to simply you having these podcasts, they are seeing that they, they, they feel seen. Yeah. I think what we learned, but what we always knew existed for, for some of us is that Patients, there are parts of the human population that do not feel seen. So this is one step to ensure people are feeling seen. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky to talk about this. I even hearing myself ask that question, I'm like, the last thing I want to do is imply that we started working on this three years ago, because I know there's a lot of people out there who have spent their entire careers working on this. But I think it's exciting that in the last three, four five years, there's starting to be just some serious momentum um, behind it, which must be kind of validating if you have been working on it for that long, because it's been a problem for the entire history of clinical trials, right? For- oh, and, and there are scholars that go well before me that have talked about this, studied this, presented this. So so honestly, the work we're doing, we're new kids on the block because there are many who have, this has been their life's work. But I think what we can do to respect and honor that work is, um, is you know, pivot the way we are and move forward and then listen to what they're saying as well. 
Um, to your point about the FDA, I've I've gotten to hear um, Robert Califf speak maybe three, four times this year at various conferences, and I think almost every time he's brought this up, either the the um, guidance itself or just the notion that this is a priority for them, and, and you know, representation representational clinical trials, diverse clinical trials. So it does seem like there's there's real um, energy there from from the government side. Yes. Oh, yeah. And and you know, to FDA's credit. They've been saying it. There have been draft guidances out. So the early guidances that came, um, you know, a f- several years ago, they may not have had the template, but they've definitely had the direction and the expectation. And I think their level, not to speak for FDA, and I don't know kind of, uh, kind of internally what's been discussed, but I can only imagine that possibly there's a level of frust- there's been a level of frustration about whether or not the guidance has been paid attention to. Mm. You know, and uh, because they've been very vocal about it, uh, you know, with issuing dr- new drafts over the last few years. Um, if we think about the history, uh, even with the demographic rule that came out in the 90s, where must report on uh, gender, diver- you know, the, the, your, your percentage of men and women must present your data on subgroup analysis on the number of people of color, uh, you know, between Asian, black, white, uh, Latino um, uh, and and then also their 2020 um, FDA report, which was on um, the diversity of the populations um, based on those drugs and biologics that were approved, and which I mean, people of you know, I think um, you know we're, we're looking at African Americans, Asians, and Asian population coming in less than 10. percent So wow. you know they've been focused on it. So the thing I keep hearing, and you touched on this, talking about collaboration in, within the industry, you know, this isn't a competitive advantage point. This is, we're playing catch up. And so we all need to work together and, and try to make sure we don't duplicate efforts, right? I mean, if someone has something that works. Um, so, so this is what I keep hearing is that, you know, like there is a lot of energy across the industry towards, towards making this a reality. The big sponsors, big pharma companies, big med device companies have sort of the, the power to be the leaders here. Uh, because they have the money to invest in it, like, you know, Abbott has uh, with its multi-million dollar investment. Uh, so I'm just curious, sort of like, if that's what needs to happen now, is is this more collaboration, more standardization, more um, kind of working together to set the the norms? Um, what still needs to happen in, in that sphere? Are there particular areas where, you know, more work needs to be done, more evidence needs to be generated, better kind of standards and guidances need to happen or or is it all just kind of like coming along at its own pace? Well, I, I do think that the um, collaborative effort, I think we have to probably um, across industry have to figure out, you know, I, I've had discussions about consortium building and I think we have to figure out whether or not we're going to do that because to your point, some may have figured out what works and there's no reason to have redundancies because it's not efficient. So I do think that there probably has to be more effort in uh, understanding kind of how are we going to do that collaboration and do that together so that we can be a little more efficient. And something that I feel that as industry, we still need to do, we need to continue to work on is I don't, in all this work, I never, or we never want to assume what the patient is thinking and needing. And are we, are you know, let's not get too caught up in that hey, we're doing it, we're doing it, but we're forgetting those who we need to be hearing from. We need to hear from the patients and what their needs are. We need to hear from the health care workers and what they're seeing. 
We need to hear from you know the physician investigators and the nurses and the nurse research coordinators on what they're seeing because you know I don't ever want us as a company to become detached from that because we're so caught up in what we have to do and we're making sure that we are hearing the right individuals who are saying you know hey I, I'm being left out here and I need this is what I need so I think it's it's a part work of how will we as a cross industry continue to collaborate and not becoming too detached from the needs of the people that we're trying to help and the families. So really, it's kind of a multidimensional collaboration with each other, with the government regulators, and also with the patients. Yes. Oh, you just, you just, you know what? I can't show you the slide, but I have a slide and it's a unity slide. Uh, It says, you know, and it says clinical trials is a team sport. And in that patient is your center point, community advocates, community, you know, so that, that community partnership, then working with supporting new physicians, new researchers, working with the regulator, again, coming, touching back to your patient, to, um, you know, supporting, uh, you know, new areas of research. It, it, it's this unity circle that you can't, uh, you can't break. So it is multi, multifaceted in which we, we want to make sure that we have all these touch points because it's not a one person, um, one person, yeah. yes. <laughs> I think one of the reasons I really enjoy reporting on clinical trials is that it is such a, I mean, almost a microcosm of every aspect of the healthcare industry touches on. Um, we have just a little time left. I've got one more, uh, one more big question for you, and then I'll give you a chance to do kind of closing thoughts. But another trend in clinical trials is increasingly looking, just like everything else in the world right now, how can we use AI? How can we use big data? Um, to streamline, to improve efficiencies. But of course, there is also a long history with AI and big data of, you know, uh, you know, bias in, in the data sets that leads to bias in the algorithms, um, you know, big data sets uh, of, of mostly white people. So it almost seems like, you know, if we try to solve this diversity issue in active trials, but then we start using old data in those trials and then the the non-diverseness of, of the research of the past is going to just kind of claw its way in. Um, so, I mean, is that something that you guys spend any time thinking about of making sure that sort of as you innovate in clinical trials, you're not introducing new problems that then kind of undo the, the work you're doing towards diversity? Yes. Um, you know, with some of our data scientists that we currently have, we always say, you know, good data in, good data out. And we keep that in front of us because the machine is only as, the machine learning out, you know, output is only as good as the data that we put in. And we have to be very cautious about that. Um, I do think that there are some really great opportunities with machine learning and AI. When uh, I look at the work that we're doing from a trial health perspective, you know, when from the start of a trial, we are moving from a very, um, a uh, single dimensional approach of how we used to look at data and, and somewhat be very disconnected. Like I had one data set here and one here, but I never put them together to help me throughout the course of the trial to understand um, how we are conducting the trial and what change, what, 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 how we need to move and be fluid in order to um, best support uh, number one, uh, you know, uh, the patient, the therapy physicians. However, it, it's, it can, you know, the data, there are ways to do it where you, to your point, you're still critical of the data that you're using, but at the same time, it can be such an amazing learning tool from anywhere from enrollment, because I think sometimes we 
you know, we can struggle with predicting enrollment, but are there ways we can actually use machine learning algorithms us to better understand how to develop predictive models of the patients we need? Okay, so that can actually be a positive, but again, understanding our data pool that, you know, if we're using electronic healthcare records, what that data pool looks like, what those patients look like, what does that zip code look like of who's coming in? Okay, but then on the other side, when I've had, when my data has come out, machine learning models can help me understand, you know, I presented this data in total. Okay, so I, you know, primary endpoint, here's the outcome. But do I really understand who benefited? versus who did not and why. And using predictive models to know who, based on these demographic of patients, based on what, they, what they're coming and presenting at, who did what, despite being a positive trial, who did well and who did not, let me help actually potentially using a model to know how well someone like me presenting is going to do with that therapy. And then, you know, kind of the backup, you cannot forget the physician, uh, the investigators, because during the course of the trial, that data that I receive, that I, I'm able to receive on, on the use of the therapy and um, how to, you know, basically the use of how to use our products, that data can help me educate them during the course of the trial and afterwards. Because many times physicians, you know, they'll read the primary endpoint paper, but they'll say, well, how did I do? How did my patients do? And so we are able to use um, you know, big data, things like Power BI to basically understand how those physicians, how, how uh, they performed uh, during the course of their trial with the use of the, the therapy, the product and how their patients did. So there are so many layers, but again, it can be done with caution. You know, we don't just throw the data in there and say, Look, well, let's see how it goes. We, we actually are able to be very critical of the data we're using and understanding of how we use it. That was a great answer. I'm afraid I opened a can of worms with a big question right at the end. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time. But thank you so much for joining me. And any final thoughts that you know you want to share with the the uh, the listeners? Well, Jonah, I just appreciate that you are keeping the conversation going. We need individuals such as yourself to keep it moving. Okay, and so I think what I'd like to end with is that this is a concerted effort, and as I think I said the last time, this is a marathon. So our job is to figure out. Okay, what, what, what have we done? How can we continue to improve on that? What is the next step? And don't forget the voices of the people that we need to be listening to, our patients, patients' families, the investigators, and the investigator, the, the, health, you know, the healthcare staff, the team, the healthcare workers. So all of those individuals have to be a part and parcel, and then our regulators as, as well, and the community advocates. So all of that is part of this. It's, it's not a one, one individual work stream. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for the work you do. And maybe we'll talk again in a year. I don't know. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Sounds good. You take care. Have a great 2023. All right. You too. Bye. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for PharmaForum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.